The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Pray with me. Your hand, O Lord, the works of your hand, by your hand, you powerfully change reality. There was nothing, there was darkness, and you said, let there be light, and there was. We stand in awe of your power, of your might, of your control. You think things, you say things, and they happen. You bring light where there is darkness. And this morning, Lord, as we turn and think about how you bring spiritual light where there is spiritual darkness, give us grace to marvel also at the work of your hand in this area, how you change reality in the spiritual realm, giving light to darkness, giving sight to blindness. You truly are awesome in salvation, sovereign over it all. And I pray, Lord, give us some apprehension of that, some comprehension of that. Allow us to apprehend what's really going on, who you are and what you do. Give us an ability to understand that and then to revel in it and to respond to it appropriately. Would you give grace to us this morning, Lord, because without it we will fail. We won't see ourselves. So shine light into our hearts again today. Open up the word to us. Illumine our minds, I pray. To the glory of Christ, to the salvation of the nations, and to the good of your people, I pray. Amen. Don Richardson's book, Eternity in Their Hearts, tells the following story of an encounter that occurred outside Rangoon in Burma in the year 1795. And what I'm going to say here is largely quoting from a much larger story there. But he tells the story. If the inhabitants of this village are not Burmese, asked the English diplomat, what then are they? What do they call themselves? Karan, replied the Burmese guide. Very well, then, said the Englishman. Let's go see what these coroners look like. But the coroners, it turned out, were even more interested in discovering what the Englishman looked like. This first encounter with a white European face amazed them, and drawn like moths to a lamp, they converged upon the diplomat, who recoiled slightly as the wiry brown hands reached out and touched his arms and his cheeks. The Burmese guide, meanwhile, spoke disparagingly of the car and be careful. They're nothing but rogue hill people prone to fighting and thieving. 
But the Englishman was no longer listening to his guide because cheerful Karen voices now charmed his ears. Every man, woman, and child gathered around glowed with radiant welcome. What a welcome change, he thought, from the usual aloof Burmese greeting of foreigners. A Karen man who spoke Burmese explained something to the guide. This is interesting, said the guide. These tribesmen think that you may be a certain white brother whom they, as a people, have been expecting from time immemorial. How curious, replied the diplomat. Ask them what this white brother is supposed to do when he arrives. He's supposed to bring them a book, the guide said. A book like the one their forefathers lost long ago. And they are all expectantly saying, hasn't he brought it? Ha! laughed the Englishman. And who, pray tell, is the author of such a book that could charm illiterate people like these? They say the author is Yahweh, the supreme God. And they say that the white brother, when he brings them the book, will thereby set them free from all that oppresses them. This last statement about being set free from oppression was given a political twist by the Burmese guide because at the time, Burma was politically and physically oppressing these Karen people. And sensing the guide's displeasure and discomfort, the English diplomat replied, Tell them they're mistaken. I have no acquaintance with this god called Yuwa, and I have no idea who their white brother may be. And they left. The story is told in full in Richardson's book, and it's a lot longer story. But this whole book is about countless events and countless circumstances in which God is at work in peoples all around the world, leaving a testimony in their hearts, working through circumstances, through history, through oral tradition, calling people, causing them to seek for something like a white man who will bring a book that will set them free, a book from God. He's at work in all kinds of different ways, preparing people, warming their hearts, seeking out his lost sheep, be they Karan tribesmen in Burma or Ethiopian eunuchs in Judea. The question is, not is God at work, the question before us this morning is, will you respond and be at work with him? That's what the book of Acts puts before us. God is at work chasing down his people, at work behind the scenes, the Spirit moving across the globe to call in the sheep. Will you take sides with him and go out taking up the mission? The book of Acts is about that. The second half of chapter 8 is about that, our passage for this morning. Let me turn to that and read it, and we'll move back through it to catch some of the main points before I pull out a couple of themes at the end. And if someone can turn down that light, that would be really helpful to me. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, 
a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, Here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they had come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. We've been moving through the book of Acts, and today we find ourselves with Philip again. Last week, at the beginning of chapter 8, we saw him preaching in Samaria, of all places, having been chased out of Jerusalem, and things went very well there, surprisingly well. Masses of people paid attention to Philip's gospel, the gospel of Christ. They came to believe, and they were converted. Things are extremely fruitful there, which makes the following occurrence quite surprising. An angel of the Lord appears to Philip. God gives Philip a message. Get up, leave this fruitful place in Samaria, and go down to the road that leads from Jerusalem down to Gaza. Gaza is a city close to the Mediterranean coast to the southwest of Jerusalem. So this is a little bit away from Samaria, and as the text says, it's a desert place. And if you're Philip, you've got to be wondering about this. Be somewhat analogous to if you've been chased out of the main city, like say chased out of Salt Lake here, and you've moved up to Ogden and things are going very well there. A lot of people have come to faith, but there's still a whole bunch of people who haven't yet. And then God says, I know things are going well here, but I want you to get up and start walking to the southwest and go out there onto I-80, the other side of the Ochre Mountains, and hang out. And you're thinking, there's a lot of people up here. And I know there are a few towns here and there out out along I-80, but that's a remote place. That is not likely to be fruitful out there. There's nobody there. But that's the instruction, so he goes. And what do you know? There is somebody there on the road, the Ethiopian Secretary of the Treasury. This man is a high, powerful government official in the court of the Candace. The Candace is an official title like Caesar. This is the queen of Ethiopia called the Candace, and he works for her. He's in charge of the treasury. Now, Ethiopia in ancient times was just to the south of Egypt, along the Nile River, and so this guy's a couple countries away from home. He's a black African government leader. 
quite a difference from the, the Samaritan people that Philip had just been among, who were mixed Jewish and Gentile descent, and they have some roots in Judaism, and they live to the north of Jerusalem. This man's from a totally different place. And he's traveling along this road. You should probably picture him in a caravan. It only focuses on one vehicle, but people like this don't travel alone. He has an escort. He's, he's important. Probably a number of vehicles there in a caravan. And he's traveling on this road because he's just been at Jerusalem worshiping at the temple, which is another significant difference from the Samaritans. They wouldn't go there. This man is perhaps a Gentile who's a God-fearer. That means he's been drawn in some way to the God of Israel. He might be a Gentile, but because the text doesn't say that, it's more likely that he's actually full Jew, fully Jewish somehow. He's converted to Judaism in his past. And he's gone up to Jerusalem to worship, and here he is on the way home. And he's managed somehow to acquire a scroll of Isaiah, which is remarkable. Because these weren't common. A scroll would be expensive. It's all hand-copied. It's very meticulous. It wouldn't be like going down to the local bookstore and buying a Bible. It's kind of remarkable that he has one. And it's in his possession at the time, and he's reading it out loud, which was common for that day as he travels along. And Philip comes down to this caravan. God tells him, go up to that chariot, attach yourself to it. And so he runs up there just at the moment that he hears him read Isaiah 53, 7, like a lamb led to slaughter. Now, those are the facts to this point, but step back for a second and realize what's going on. There's one devout man leaving Jerusalem, traveling to the southwest, And there's another man, 60 miles or so away up in Samaria, walking to the southwest across the desert, and they meet at just the moment that this man reads Isaiah 53, 7. What a remarkable coincidence. Crazy random stuff going on here. He arrives at just the time when the quintessential verse about the crucified Christ is on this man's lips. I did a little experiment with my own Bible. I opened up to Isaiah 53, started in verse 7, and reading at a very casual pace, it took me a minute and 15 seconds to get to chapter 54, which is not nearly so Christ-centered. There's about a minute window in which these two paths can meet, in which this man is perfectly prepared to hear about Christ. It's a small little window there, and God brings him along at just that time. And this dusty, dirty commoner, Philip, who looks homeless like he lives in the desert, because he is homeless and he lives in the desert, (laughs) he arrives at the chariot of a high government official and says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And remarkably, this guy says no. That doesn't happen either. Foreigners talking, tremendous class difference, and he admits I don't know what I'm reading. Do you? Why would this guy know? (laughs) Why? Some guy runs up to your chariot and says, do you need help with something? But this man wants to know the truth. He's reading the scripture and he wants to know. So he asks him. His pride's already been removed. And he says, I need a guide. And so God's guide steps up into the chariot, and they open up the scriptures. And the eunuch's first question is a softball lob right over the middle of the plate. You know, I've been reading about this lamb led to slaughter. 
willingly dying an undeserved death. And my question is, who is that about? And if you're Philip at this point, you're probably looking around to see if you're actually on candid camera or something. (laughs) Is that really, seriously, that's your question? Who is this about? You want to know who the lamb slain unjustly is. Really. And starting there, of course, he preaches the good news about Jesus to him. And the man, of course, believes and says, what do you know, there's water here in the desert. At that moment, what prevents me from being baptized? Nothing does. He obviously believes. Philip knows that. Philip baptizes him. They both get out there, baptize him, come out of the water, and Philip's gone. Now, the text says that the Spirit carried him away, and and the eunuch saw him no more. And maybe that means it was a miraculous transport. That could be. It could also mean that there were a bunch of people milling around and they got out and Philip kind of moved through the crowd and by the time the Ethiopian dried himself off and looked around, he couldn't see him. He just vanished. Either way, Philip's gone and the unit continues on. There's some symbolism here, moving away from the temple to Ethiopia, which is on the edge of the earth from their perspective. And Philip finds himself again along the Mediterranean coast, traveling town to town to town to town, preaching the gospel as he goes until he gets to Caesarea, where he gets married, settles down, and has a family. We meet him again later in chapter 21. But today, we're looking at Philip with this Ethiopian eunuch. The story of how one particular guy got saved 2,000 years ago. That's a nice story. What does that have to say to us? This passage, this event here, is highlighting an important connection between two significant different truths. It connects them for us, and if we'll see them joined together, interwoven, it should lead us to confident, bold response, bold action, confident, hopeful action. It should get us to move. Throughout this passage, one strand of truth, throughout this passage, God is at work. God is doing things. Clearly, God's driving this. And he's using Philip, a human being. God is at work. People are active. Those are the two strands of truth that get woven together here. And when they weave together, it should lead us to this response. Here's the main point for this morning. Side with the Sovereign One in salvation. Side with Him. Take sides. Come to His side. Side with Him. Take up this work right alongside of Him. It's His work that you have to be working in. Side with the Sovereign One in salvation. That's what Acts, that's what chapter 8 is pressing on us always. God, by the Spirit, is doing something with his people together. There's the two strands woven together here. I'm going to take them apart and look at them one at a time. We'll start where everything has to start always with the sovereignty of God. First observation. God is sovereign over salvation. By sovereign, I mean that he's the one who is in charge. That's what a sovereign is. Like an absolute king who holds all power. Not like a president who shares power with other branches of government and faces an election every few years. This is a king, a sovereign, who is the ultimate authority, the one in charge 
over everything, and in saying in particular that he's sovereign over salvation, emphasizing something here, that he's in charge of the whole process of salvation from beginning to end. All of it is under his authority. He is sovereign over it. And he begins by making a ground for salvation, a basis for salvation. If anybody anywhere at all is going to be saved, something has to be done about sin because God is just and holy and righteous and he cannot overlook or ignore sin. Somehow, if anybody at all is going to be saved, somehow the wrath of God that is bearing down justly on everyone on earth who sins, which is everybody on earth, the wrath of God that's justly bearing down on people must be turned away somehow if anybody's going to be saved. This is the greatest problem in all of the world, and it should be foremost on our mind. That's our great problem. If you're not saved this morning, if you're not a Christian this morning, this should be what consumes you. I have a problem with God. My sin and me before God is a problem. And if you are a Christian, you should say, that is my greatest problem, and look at what God has done for me. Look how he has intervened and acted on my behalf. Glory to him. This sin problem and the wrath of God coming and turned away should be huge on your mind. The biggest problem in all the world, we all like sheep have turned away. Humanity is one massive collection of rebellion against God. One who made us, who has authority over us, to whom we are accountable. The judgment of God against sin and rebellion is real. Against the sin and rebellion that is not just in our actions, what we do, like the big stuff, like murder and steal. Not in that. The sin and rebellion that is primarily found at the core of our being. Every thought, every desire, every inkling, every hint, every hope that you have that is contrary to the glory of God, contrary to submission to Him and desire to exalt Him, everything that's in here is sin, and God is against it in judgment. We have a huge problem. What can be done about that? By us? Nothing. We can't do anything. We can't become anything. What we do, what we are, is the problem. The problem, the solution to this problem has to come from outside of us, which is what Isaiah 53 is about. The eunuch asks Philip, who is this? This sheep led to slaughter, silent, not protesting, but willingly going, humble even to death. We're to take the very next line in Isaiah 53, verse 8. Who is it stricken for the transgression of my people? Or 53, verse 10. Who is it that the Lord was pleased to crush, whose soul makes an offering for the sin of his people? Who is that? Struck down for the sake of the sin of God's people. Who is it that makes an offering, a pleasing, willing offering for sin? You know who it is. Philip takes it from right there and says, I'll tell you who the Lamb of God slain for the sin of the world is. Jesus. Slain for the sin of the world, to remove the sin of the world. Not meaning the world without any exception. 
The Bible's very clear. Most of the world, most people in the world, their sin remains on them. What he means is the sin of the world without distinction. Black Ethiopian, Jew, Samaritan, European, Asian, without distinction, the whole world can have its sin removed by this lamb. This is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Struck down for the sake of God's people. That is good news. The wrath of God that's bearing down on people is borne by Christ on the cross. And so those who hide under this crucified Christ can be forgiven. That's why we call it Good Friday. It's good news that Philip preaches. It's good news in the gospel. Salvation is available because Christ was crucified. By whom? By God. Remember Acts chapter 4, verse 24 and following. The believers are praying there and they say, Sovereign Lord. They're talking to the Sovereign Lord. They realize that. Sovereign Lord, who made everything and who has gathered together in this city Pontius Pilate and Gentiles, gathered with him Herod and Jews, all these people together against Jesus to do, here's what they pray, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They killed Christ according to the hand plan that was predestined of God. God killed him. Oh, sure, they did too, and they will bear responsibility for that. But they are really clear about this. God is the one who made this ground of salvation. God was pleased to crush his son. It was his will. It was his plan, his intent. He meant it that way. Evil, yes, that God meant for good. The gospel is God's idea. You should marvel at that. If you're not a Christian, you should say, God has made a way for me to be saved. Take him up on it. There's no other way. And if you are a Christian, you say, the biggest problem I face in all of life, God has solved in the gospel. God solved it in the gospel. He's for you. Who can be against you? He's made this ground of salvation, and then he makes sure that the message about this ground gets to whom he wants it to get to. Gets to those he is calling. The text is explicit about that. Who inclined Philip to leave Samaria and go down to the road? God told him. Who told Philip to go over to that chariot? God told him. And when that mission was over, who told Philip to leave and go preaching up the coast? God again. God sends him. God gives him specific instruction when he gets there. And when his mission is accomplished, God moves him on to something else. God is the one carrying the message around Judea. In Philip's mouth, God's the one moving the messenger around. It's really clear. He makes the ground... He carries the message, and then when the message gets there, God assures that it is believed. God makes sure that it is believed. 
Now, that's assumed in this passage. It's not the Ethiopian's actual belief is not recorded in the text. It's just assumed. We could look to any number of other places and read a little more detail about it. A place you might write down would be 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 to 6. Paul there teaches that all non-Christians alike have been blinded in their minds, speaking spiritually here. All of us start out blinded in our minds. By whom? That text says by Satan, the god of this world. Blinded us so that we, when we weren't Christians, could not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel is good news about Christ's glory and it's shining on blind people who cannot see it. What's the solution to that? People don't unblind themselves. Keep reading down in verse 6. God, the sovereign God who said, let light shine out of darkness, and there was light. Genesis 1. That same God said, let there be light, and shone into these blind hearts, and there was light, and there was sight, and the gospel was seen, and then embraced and believed. That's the work of God, the sovereign grace of God to give to people sight. He makes the ground, he carries the message, and he gives sight that the message about the ground is believed. It is the sovereign work of God in salvation. That is significant. That whole package is massive. But I think it's really just about the tip of the iceberg. The top 10% that shows above the water because beneath the surface there is a vast complex web of the working of God. There are more things hinted at in this text, things you might just call coincidences if you were inclined to do so. I mentioned some of them already. He gets there at just the right moment. That's remarkable. And who's in the caravan but a guy who's actually seeking the truth, who actually possesses the scriptures, who's reading them at the time, and is in Isaiah 53 at the time. It's a remarkable coincidence. And who prompts Philip to run over there? Well, God told him to go, and it's kind of like he says, go over there, and then he whispers, hurry up because he's coming to 53. And so he runs instead of just walks. Surely this guy's traveling with guards and escorts, and they let a guy run up out of the desert to the chariot of the chief official? Either they don't care or they don't see it. And how is it that Isaiah 53 was written in the first place 600 years ago? Peter tells us that the prophets had little idea what they were actually writing about. But God directs them, write this in such a way. And how is it the Ethiopian is inclined to seek truth from a stranger? And how is it that this softball question is on his lips? And how is it that of all places in the desert, there's water right there? God's fingerprints are all over this thing. But you could even go a little further back behind this, and you could ask, how is it that this guy can read? Not everybody could read at the time, but this guy can. How is it that he somehow got a job in the government that would enable him to travel? How is it that he's wealthy enough to be able to afford a, a, a scripture? How is it that he first came into contact with Judaism so that he would be friendly and inclined to go to the temple two countries away? 
How is it that these two guys can speak the same language? How is it that Philip's a Christian? That Philip understands Isaiah 53? And on and on and on. You can work back as far and as wide as you want to go. Somebody decided, when this Ethiopian man was a boy, somebody decided, son, you should learn how to read. It'll be good for you in life. And he got a tutor to teach him. Never meaning... Because one day you're going to be on a road back from Jerusalem to Gaza and you're going to want to understand Isaiah 53. That was not in his father or mother's or tutor's mind at all. But years later you find that's important. You think about these things and you can go on and on and on and on. And what you begin to see is that the sovereign control of God over the salvation process is remarkably complex. It's not nearly so simplistic and mechanical as, here's the message, you don't believe it, now you do. That's really simple, that's in a moment, but there's a huge web that surrounds that. The sovereignty of God. We should think and we should exclaim with Paul in Romans 11, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge, and I would add in power of God. It's complex. And God's working it all to save his people. That's the first strand of truth woven through this passage. How is it supposed to affect us? Some years back, while serving in an overseas mission field in a vastly Muslim country, I had a conversation with another missionary who had been there for a longer period of time. I just arrived, and so he was kind of briefing me and giving me the, the lay of the land, so to speak. And, and to be honest, his briefing was rather bleak. Summarized, he essentially said, you know, here's the situation. Nobody really likes us. Very few people are remotely interested in what we had to talk about. It's financially difficult to stay here. It's difficult health-wise because we're always getting sick. Our, our wives are a little lonely, and it's really hot. I mean, really hot. It's kind of tough. Welcome. Glad you're here. And I said, glad to be here, I guess. <laughs> wow, okay. And then he said, I tell you, if I didn't believe in the sovereign grace of God, I'd have left a long time ago. If I thought it was up to me to make this work, it was up to me to persuade people to gain a hearing and make this gospel appealing to these folks who I encounter every day, if I thought it was up to me, that, that's not happening. I'd have left a long time ago, but I don't believe that. I actually believe that God is sovereign over this whole process and is doing what he wants to do and will do what he wants to do. And everything that we're involved in is working into his vast, complex plan in some way or another. Maybe I'll be at the end of that plan, on the, on the top, 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 top part of the iceberg, but more likely I'm somewhere down below. And I believe that. I believe that God is sovereign over this whole process and he's called us here to preach and so we're going to preach. You see what he's saying there? The sovereignty of God, the truth of God's 
absolute control is a bulwark. It's a rampart, a wall on a fortress behind which it is a citadel within which you hide your heart in despairing times. That works in all of life. In all of life, the sovereignty of God gives comfort and hope and peace. He is in charge. Nothing is out of his hands. And in salvation in particular, it means he's in charge of this process of calling people to himself. My job is to be faithful. My job is to be obedient, to follow him in his work. And he will bring the results. And he will bring the results. I hide myself in that. I hide behind it. It gives me hope. He's moving heaven and earth to save people like Ethiopian eunuchs. And he moves people to save people like Ethiopian eunuchs. And that gets us to our second point. This is shorter than the first point, but I need to be really clear about this. Because you can misunderstand all that's just gone before, and you can really misunderstand what I just said about the bulwark and the citadel within which you hide your heart. There's a, there's a fine line. You need to be very careful. You hide your heart in there, but you don't hide yourself. Do not pull back into the citadel Shut the gates and try to hold on till Christ comes. Christianity is an offensive faith. Not offensive. It is offensive to some, but it's, it's as contrary to defensive. We are not to hole up in the holy huddle and try to hold them off. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against him and his church. That means there's a citadel over there, Satan's citadel, the gates are closed, and as the church approaches in the power of the Spirit with the battering ram, the gates will shatter. This is an offensive faith. So you, at the same time, you hide your heart back here in the sovereignty of God while you march out to battle with the sovereign God. Both of these things at once. So here's the second point. Obediently, trustingly side with this sovereign one in salvation. Phil appears from verse 8. You shall be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. And he thinks, I'm in Judea. That must be about me. I'm going to be obedient. This is not a spectator sport. Philip realizes that I'm supposed to be involved. Here I am a Christian. Here I am in Judea. That must mean me. He's sovereign in salvation, but he uses means to accomplish his ends. And those means almost always include people. Now, there are times that God does things sovereignly all by himself. But think, what's the usual way that God feeds his people? The usual way God feeds his people, and God's the one doing it, is through means. Sending rain on the earth, having farmers plant seed, Weeding it, fertilizing it, harvesting it, shipping it off to the supermarket so that you can go buy it with the job that he provided for you. You go buy the food, put it on your table, you eat. That's God feeding you. Sometimes he rains down manna directly from heaven. That almost never happens. Usually he uses means. Same thing in salvation. Philip gets that. We need to. 
Philip doesn't save anybody in this story. But without Philip, nobody gets saved. See the connection there. God's at work. If there's no Philip, nothing happens. Philip obeys in trust, even though it makes little sense at first. I'm in Samaria, I'm supposed to go to the desert? That makes no sense. But he heard it from God, and so he obeys. And he goes. And then he sees the chariot. I'm supposed to run up there, I'm going to get by the guards, and that guy's going to listen to me? I mean, look at me. Yeah, go. So he does. And then he leaves later. The specific commands of God, Philip obeys. Be involved in my work in this way, and he does. We need to hear that and obey the specific commands of God. Now, careful here, because sometimes some of us want to call specific commands from God things that are not specific commands from God. So be careful. Weigh weigh what you think God is telling you against the Scriptures. Weigh what you think God is telling you against what other Christians counsel. Run it by people. But God can still incline and lead people. So listen. Listen to what he says expressly in the Scriptures. Listen to what he inclines your heart to do and obey him. But Philip obeys in other ways beyond just the clear verbal order, go here, do this. When he gets there, God does not tell him, run. God does not expressly tell him, ask the guy in the chariot if he knows what he's reading. God does not expressly tell him, climb into the chariot, even though it's carrying you further away from where you're going to go, and when this is all over, you're going to have a long walk. God does not expressly tell him, preach the gospel right now. God does not expressly tell him, baptize this man who believes. You don't have the direct command there. What we have there is Philip obeying a standing order. Do you know what a standing order is? Some do, I'm sure, but some perhaps not. Standing orders are orders that apply at all times. They stand. So put it in a family situation. If you have a couple of kids and you tell them on Monday, don't fight with your brother. Don't hit your brother. On Tuesday, you don't have to say in the morning, okay, now today, I don't want you to hit your brother. And then on Wednesday, you know, here's the rule for today, don't hit your brother. And Thursday, here's what I want you to do today, don't hit your brother. It's a standing order in almost all households. And no kid gets away with it on Saturday. You didn't tell me today that I couldn't hit my brother. It's a standing order, no hitting your brother. In the military, standing orders. Today, we're against the Germans. On Tuesday, nobody needs to say, you know, today again, we're fighting the Germans. On Wednesday, still, we're still fighting the Germans. It's understood, we're not cooperating with the Germans, we're against them. Standing orders. What's the standing order in the book of Acts? You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Philip says, that means me, right now, that's... Jesus' orders to me. Now, he brought me here by some specific command. I don't know exactly how to work all this out, but I'm going to step out and say, maybe I'll ask this guy a question. Maybe that's the way I should go and see what he says. Do you understand what you're reading? Now, if the guy had said, no, get lost, Philip probably would have done something else. But he didn't. He found a door open, what do you know? And so he thought, well, I should probably pursue this a little further. Maybe I'll get into the chariot with him, and we'll talk. 
And this guy seems to want to go this way. I think I'll go this way too because this seems to be like an opportunity. And I'm under orders, standing orders, to make the most of this opportunity. So I'm going to go. Brothers and sisters, we are all under standing orders. Sometimes, in some ways, God may tell you something specific. Do this, that. Probably he won't. That's rare. That doesn't mean he hasn't given you a command. He's given you an abiding command. Wherever you are, think, I'm here under orders. What would that mean for me right now? Might it mean I take a risk and go up to so-and-so and and just join their conversation? Might it mean that I actually find out so-and-so's name and just see what happens? Might it mean I, I hear a little bit of a conversation that may go a spiritual direction? Maybe I'll ask a question and see what comes of it. Maybe they'll tell me to get lost. Maybe they won't. Who knows? You may bump into the sovereign working of God. Maybe I'll, I'll go with them, even though it's inconveniencing me to play this one out a little longer. Maybe I'll begin to express the gospel verbally, clearly. One thing is sure, though, you will never get the question, who is this about? If you don't leave Samaria, run up to the chariot and ask, do you know what you're reading? Obey him. Obey him when he speaks clearly. Obey him under his standing orders and see what he does. That's his call to us. We are to get in the game. He's sovereign over all of this. He's accomplishing some vast, vast, complex plan using human means, his people. You will be my witnesses. If you see that, you should realize He's calling you into a winning game. Yes, it's going to be hard. Half the time it won't make any sense. Three quarters of the time it won't make any sense. You won't know what you're doing. He's called you into the game anyway. And you you think like this, you think, my fumblings, my confusion is somehow going to play into this. I can be involved. He's calling me. It's a privilege. It's an opportunity. Take it. I didn't finish the story about those Karen villagers in Burma. We were expecting the white brother with the book from God that would set them free from oppression. The British diplomat left. But 30 years later, in a house near Rangoon, One Karen man came into the city, came to this house, and met another white brother who did have a book from Yuwa, American missionary Adoniram Judson. Moved all the way around the world. Was in the midst of some extremely disappointing and fruitless, apparently fruitless effort bumps into this one man. This one man begins to put things together from his cultural past. White man, book from God, freedom from oppression, believes. 
And that man, Judson, and especially Judson's compatriots, spread out across the countryside and saw tens of thousands of Karen people come to faith in Christ. Tens of thousands of people in a flood, prepared from time past, waiting for this book from God, but the message of freedom from oppression, waiting for it. And a man moved all the way around the world, translated it into Burmese, and then after that into local languages, carried it out into the hills, he and his, he and his compatriots, and a flood of people came into the kingdom. God is sovereign over salvation. He creates the gospel. He carries the message around the world to whomever he wants to carry it to. He assures that they believe. And he does that through his people. Side with him. Side with this sovereign one in salvation. And experience something marvelous now and forever. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.